Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a chemically charged conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Chemically charged because we are going to be talking about whether fentanyl is a chemical weapon. Fentanyl is the number one killer of Americans age 18 to 45. It kills 187 Americans every single day. It is coming to our land from foreign countries, and I would say that we are under a chemical attack by fentanyl. As you can see, I am not in my usual High Truth studio, but on the road. I am in the Westin Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. My background is a real hotel furniture, and I'm here for a presentation to the Missouri Medical Society. Shout out to them for a wonderful invitation. I recently gave a presentation to a delegation of visitors from China. We had an interesting exchange. The Chinese told me that they do not have a fentanyl as a problem in their country. Their number one drug problem was methamphetamine that they call ice, number two, heroin, and number three, ketamine. And they asked me why Americans choose to use fentanyl if they know people will die. They also thought that it was not in their culture to have fentanyl, but it was the American culture that was seeking out fentanyl. What the Chinese delegates did not understand, and perhaps many Americans don't understand, is that drug use is driven by supply, not just by culture. We have an endless supply of methamphetamine in California, and that's why so many people in California use meth. It's not the culture, it's the supply. I was recently at the United Nations in Vienna for the annual commission on narcotic drugs, and it was fascinating to listen to different people and aspects about drugs. I was given an important history lesson. Remember the opium wars. I need a refresher history lesson. So the first opium war was in 1839 to 1842 between China and United Kingdom. The British were trafficking opium into China, and the Chinese begged them to stop. Supply mattered. Their population was becoming addicted, but Britain did not stop. The military battle ended with Hong Kong going to Britain. 
The second Opium War was it with Britain and France against China. 14 years later, 1856 to 1860, the Chinese wanted to stamp out the opium trade, but the West was driven by profit. And the Chinese seized a British ship and threw the crew into chains. And again, a war broke out uh, with China being on the losing end. The peace treaty included legalizing the opium trade. Is it payback time now for what the West did years ago? That was 163 years ago where Chinese population was being poisoned by opium. And now we are the ones here being poisoned by opioids, fentanyl and specifically. History can teach us that drugs indeed are used in chemical warfare in subduing a population. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Lev. Thank you for bringing us High Truths. My name is Michael Gray, father of Amanda Gray, who passed away in 2018 from an acute fentanyl toxicity. My daughter Amanda was not a known drug user or in any way uh, having a chronic substance use disorder. Uh, my daughter was trying to self-medicate a uh, particularly acute symptom of her diagnosed and well-established psychiatric disorder uh, and trying to uh, self-medicate. She went to the street to buy some drug for that purpose. Uh, it contained uh, very high levels of fentanyl in a fake uh, medication. And she was killed. So I began a uh, fight against this idea of people who are dying from fentanyl by a deception or by a poisoning or by taking something that they believe to be other than fentanyl, which turned out to be fentanyl and killed them. This is what I fight for. This is what my organization, the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, is all about. And so that's what I do. So my question for you today is about getting at the supply of fentanyl. What more can and should be done to get at the core of fentanyl that's pouring into our country and killing our families? And as you can see, my angle to this is, if these kids who are not chronic users, who are not under substance use disorder, are getting caught in the crossfire of something, well, then the only real solution for them is to limit that supply coming in. Thank you, Michael, for your question, for your wise advocacy. Let's ask whether fentanyl is a chemical weapon from one of our nation's leaders on the subject. The Honorable Andrew Weber has dedicated his professional life to countering nuclear chemical and biological threats and strengthening global health security. Mr. Weber's decades of U.S. government service included five and a half years as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs. He dealt with uranium from Kadashistan, chemical weapons in Libya and Syria, biological weapons such as Ebola. He's a perfect person to ask about fentanyl. To learn more about Andrew Weber, check out his High Truth show notes. Andrew Weber, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on and have a different conversation. Usually we talk uh, various public health and medical policies, but we're going to talk about supply. Um, I thought we would dive right into our question of the day, which comes from Michael Gray. Michael Gray uh, lost his daughter who was killed by fentanyl, uh, Amanda. She didn't mean to take uh, fentanyl, uh, but she... she uh, mistaken it or was tricked into thinking a, a pill was something else and it killed her. And so he's asking, what should we be doing at the core of the problem to get to the supply of fentanyl that's pouring into our country 
and poisoning people. And I couldn't think of anybody better to ask that than somebody who dealt with our nation's security, as you have done for, for many years, and I'm sure continue to be very focused on that. Um, what is your perspective? Well, first of all, this is just a terrible tragedy that happens every day now, um, and we need to do more to stop it. Um, we, we need to do more on the demand side and, and the public health aspects of this. And I'm very pleased uh, with the news that uh, Narcan will now be available over the counter to the public. So hopefully we can, we can save lives. But looking at the supply side, I think we need to go as far upstream as we can. The, the manufacturers, the suppliers of the precursor chemicals, um, in Mexico and then uh, their suppliers in, in China, India that provide the raw materials to make these uh, horrible, uh, dangerous drugs. Yes, um, I love that. Well, you know, we, and I talk about public health, I talk about upstream, and now I hear from you talking about supply, we could also look at it uh, upstream as well. I like that, that analogy. And yes, Narcan is now over the counter. I want it to, to be that way um, over, you know, years ago when I was at the White House, that was one of the big things that I did. And so I had on my website free prescriptions to anybody who wanted it. And I, you know, dared anybody to come, you know, uh, do something on my license for giving free naloxone that it should just be over the counter. So hopefully people don't need to do that and able to do that as well. And, um, you know, you and I both serve and uh, assist with Families Against Fentanyl. And the goal of that organization is to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction in order to go upstream to the supply uh, aspect. What do you think of that concept? Is fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction? It is. Um, for me, it's obvious. I come at this from a national security perspective, although there is some overlap between the public health um, crisis that we're facing and the drug crisis uh, and the national security crisis. But um, First of all, this is the first time in my life that a weapon of mass destruction has been available on the black market and people can buy it. Um, and for me, I learned about um, fentanyl as a chemical weapon in 2002 when the uh, Russian military special forces uh, pumped it into a theater uh, that was under siege by Chechen terrorists and they killed all of the hostage takers, as well as about 100 of the hostages. So that's when my work at the Pentagon shifted. Uh, we learned, we got samples from clothing and biological samples from the victims of that uh, military use of fentanyls as a chemical weapon by the Russian military. And once we had confirmed that indeed it was fentanyls that they had used to kill the, the hostage takers as well as so many hostages, uh, we started programs within the Department of Defense to be able to defend our troops against the military employment of uh, fentanyl uh, derivatives as a chemical weapon. And we're very concerned to this day about that. Um, but what concerns me even more is that it could be used by individuals or terrorist groups to mount a, a mass casualty attack. And that's why I think formally designating this as a weapon of mass destruction 
would uh, up our game, frankly, uh, get the defense and national security agencies more involved in um, stemming the flow of this uh, terrible substance into our country. Well, that means a lot coming from you, somebody who was in charge of our nation's security for so many years. And and I'm wondering, we we say, oh, well, we could have a theater event and we can have drones, you know, throwing fentanyl on our population, all these bad things. I don't think we need to wait for that. I think we're having, you know, over 180 people a day dying now. I think it's already happening. I think we're experiencing that. We don't need to wait for some type of attack. We're already under siege. We are, but we do need to prevent that mass casualty attack because it's it's a, a real possibility. Um, but we have so many tools that we can bring to bear, uh, and we need to make this a higher priority. I was heartened that Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas uh, this uh, week uh, said it was the number one challenge um, facing the United States, and I agree with him. Um, so. We have tools in the intelligence community, in the Defense Department, uh, that have been part of our, our strategy in countering weapons of mass destruction for decades that aren't being used to stem the flow of uh, fentanyls into the United States. Wow. Are you able to uh, elaborate on that? So if, let's say we did, if today President Biden declared fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction, tomorrow... How would that change things in our approach um, in dealing with that upstream supply? It would change the, the priority that agencies like CIA and our intelligence community, the Defense Intelligence Agency, a place on this. Frankly, counter-narcotics is never high on, on their agenda. But if it's countering a weapon of mass destruction, which I believe it is, then they would put more effort, more resources, and more capabilities into this. And, and an example I give, I, I mentioned going upstream. Um, during the war in Afghanistan, we faced a terrible problem with improvised explosive devices. And we would interdict you know, the onesies and twosies, but we realized that the, the raw material for these explosives was coming from uh, fertilizer plants and, and chemical industrial suppliers in Pakistan who had legitimate business uh, interests, but their uh, product was being misused uh, and it was blowing up Americans and, and our allies. So um, we, we worked with the factories. So we can work um, with countries like Mexico, uh, countries like India and China, where the, uh, the precursor chemicals are produced to counter uh, the flow of, of these uh, substance, substances uh, and also to um, work against the cartels that are, that are doing this for, for profit. You know, I heard you interview and talked about doing that. You actually did that with uranium, right? You were able to, to get people to, to disarm with something as deadly as that. So you're saying that we have experience already doing that. And if we change the category of fentanyl, we would be able to do those same type of techniques. Yeah, absolutely. So we have counterproliferation tools and counterterrorism tools that we've applied effectively around the world for decades. And I think we need to bring the full force of those to bear 
against this problem, to go after the big suppliers, the producers, not the small fish who come across uh, the border um, with Mexico every day. I heard you also say that the biological weapon, and I don't, I think it applies also to chemical weapon, is a, a poor man's atomic bomb. So do we have an atomic bomb now, you know, going off in our country? Well, I, I think the the potential again for a a mass casualty terrorist attack uh, by a, a right wing extremist or a foreign terrorist organization using uh, fentanyl um, as that weapon to kill hundreds thousands of people at a sporting event at a subway station at an airport. I think that's a real uh, a real possibility, and we can do a lot more than we have been doing to prevent that from from happening. And a big part of that is is going after the suppliers. Right, and I heard you say that we're when we talk about national defense, that we should be focusing not just on the kinetic war, but also on. Uh, biological weapons, chemical weapons that include fentanyl. Yeah, so a lot of my work is uh, about uh, increasing our uh, emphasis on biodefense. You know, we, we've been experiencing uh, millions of lives lost with this pandemic, but imagine if uh, a country like China or Russia or North Korea uh, engineered uh, a pathogen uh, that would be more deadly, but as transmissible as COVID. So I think we do need to increase our investment in biodefense and chemical defense. And that's something I worked on in the Pentagon for most of my career. Right. And so that's going after the actual um, supply. And what about the cartels, the, the drug cartels, organized crime um, that's that's bringing this fentanyl over? Are they a terrorist organization? Should we be labeling them uh, as such? Similar as, as labeling fentanyl a weapon of death destruction, um, calling out some of these organizations as terrorist organizations. Well, they certainly, in the case of the cartels based in Mexico, they terrorize the Mexican population. I don't think of them as uh, terrorists with political goals like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. But uh, we do um, need to go after them. Uh, they're in it for profit. Uh, they, they don't have uh, broad political goals, but they're in it to make money. Um, but they are the, uh, the source of the problem. And so, yes, if we can work side by side with law enforcement and, and militaries in, in countries like Mexico that are willing to cooperate against these cartels, we absolutely should. And, and bring them to justice and put them out of business. It's harder with a country like China that is not very cooperative. So we have other means we can use in those situations. So let's take let's talk about diplomacy. You have uh, experience with that as well. Um, let's start maybe with China. Uh, I recently uh, hosted a delegation that came from China and to talk about uh, drugs. They wanted to learn from us. I wanted to hear from them. Um, when I asked them about fentanyl, they said, we don't have a fentanyl problem in China. Um, they denied uh, sending pure, pure, 
precursors. They said, well, these are just things that can be made as anything. They didn't think that China is involved. They said that President Xi met with uh, President Trump and they no longer uh, send fentanyl uh, from China anymore. And they also said that they thought that the reason we have a fentanyl problem is because of our culture. I don't think they quite understood the, the s- supply. But again, these weren't government, uh, f- you know, high-level government. People who came, this is a, a, a delegation that was sent actually from our State Department. Yeah, well, they were probably also coached to say these things, and they, they might actually believe them or not. Um, there was a period where China was helpful uh, working with our intelligence and law enforcement uh, authorities on this transnational issue, and they they did stop some of the suppliers. I think that level of cooperation um, has has declined significantly in recent years. And it's easy for them to blame us for our problem. But this is a global issue. And, and you know whether it's climate change or international drug trafficking, we have to work together with other countries, which who will eventually become victims themselves, I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. I was just in Vienna at the United Nations uh, Commission on Narcotic Drugs. And interestingly enough, fentanyl was not the key area of focus. It was more cannabis legalization, not legalization. Um, and I don't think most of the world is not yet affected by fentanyl, right? It's it's uh, United States, Canada, I heard Slovakia, um, but most countries haven't heard of fentanyl. Yeah, or they might not even know they have a problem. Um, It is um, largely a problem in the United States. There's no question. Uh, Look at the, uh, it's become the number one um, cause of deaths of people between 18 and 49 years old. So it's a huge problem here. But for the same reasons it's a problem here, um, it's going to um, affect other countries. Now, some other countries perhaps have a more nuanced approach to uh, countering drug addiction that um, is more successful than, than our approach has been in the United States. What do you mean? Well, I, I, I think, um, you know, for example, some countries provide uh, uh, maintenance programs, whether it's methadone or other substitutes for these uh, you know, very addictive drugs that allow people to, to live normal lives. Um, so some of the demand uh, side programs um, that countries in Europe um, implement are, are effective. Right. And, and we're doing more of that in the United States as well. Um, you, you mentioned that relationships with China have deteriorated. Can, well, how do you fix that? You've ha- you have many years of experience with diplomacy. Um, they, there must be a reason they deteriorated and what would it take to get it back? And how important is that? It's very important and it's very hard. Um, I feel where um, our relations are starting to spiral out of control. Um, this uh, balloon was, was just the latest example that was shot down over the Atlantic Ocean. Um, China has become more aggressive. Um, we're very concerned that they will use a military option against Taiwan. So from a security standpoint, our relations have really um, deteriorated badly and, and the possibility for miscalculation is great. But at, at the same time, and, and I believe President Biden recognizes this, China's a big, important country that we have to engage. I mean, we can't 
make progress on climate change, for example, without China. So it's very hard. You know, how do you how do you have a, a competitive relationship, a somewhat adversarial relationship on certain issues, and still create the space to cooperate on issues where we we have to work together and there's an interest in working together. It takes diplomacy, it takes patience, and it takes work. I've heard that we may be, and I'm I'm worried, this is my selfish part, I have two daughters who are in the Navy active duty, Um, but talk of war um, with China. Is is that a possibility? Is that just uh, fear? Well, first of all, it's it's a possibility uh, that um, the current Chinese government would use force to try to um, take over Taiwan. Um, it's one that we have to deter. But let's let's be honest: a war with China would serve nobody's interests because both China and the United States have nuclear deterrence, nuclear weapons. And any, um, any direct hostilities between our countries, I believe would quickly escalate into a nuclear war and the devastation would be um, widespread. It would be here in the United States, it would be uh, global and we have to do everything we can to prevent that. Right, are we doing that? Are they doing that? Well, we're not, for example, uh, talking about um, nuclear weapons together. We've tried for years to have a conversation about arms control, about nuclear uh, weapons, uh, crisis communication, uh, constraining the the arms race of nuclear weapons, which is now um, fully underway. So we have to sort of relearn some of the lessons from the Cold War Even during the dark days of the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States worked together to reduce the numbers and types of nuclear weapons. Interesting. Um, Then, you know, the other diplomacy area country that, you know, is affecting us with, with fentanyl is Mexico. And recently, President of Mexico said fentanyl is our problem and that they don't produce fentanyl. Um, kind of harsh language, and uh, even saying, why don't they take care of their problem of social decay, (laughs) if I'm quoting that correctly. Um, That's pretty aggressive language, and our relationship, it seems like relationships are deteriorating there as well. Well, I I think it takes attention. I I think we can have good cooperation, better cooperation uh, with Mexico. It takes leadership on both sides. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken was there recently, and uh, this issue was high on his agenda. So um, I don't think it's black and white, um, but Mexico has a terrible problem with with corruption and the money involved uh, gives these cartels uh, undue influence uh, inside Mexico. But the cartels are a Mexican problem. Is there cooperation between Mexico and China, especially regarding fentanyl? I don't believe so. Interesting. So I I live in San Diego at the border. 
Um, and when I learned from our Haida, high intensity drug trafficking areas and our border patrol, our borders are porous. There's areas that are unmanned. A lot of the personnel is dealing with uh, the big uh, immigration. Um, and, uh, and so there's no blockage. I noticed that, I don't know for sure, but it seems like Florida doesn't have as much of a problem because I hear from my patients who are from Haiti and I ask them, why did you cross in San Diego, which is so much farther than Florida to come seek asylum here? And they said, well, they couldn't get into that border. Is the border an, an issue? Is that important in the upstream supply of drugs? Well, I think no matter how many seizures you have at the border, it's always going to be a small percentage of the overall quantities. Mexico is one of our largest trading partners. So the, the volume of, of, of goods uh, that cross and people that cross legally every day, I mean, we can't just shut down trade with Mexico. So um, I don't think the answer lies at the border. We do have to um, do what we can to interdict drugs at the border. But that's never going to be um, a very successful effort. Um, we, we can make progress at the margins. But with good intelligence, again, we need to go further upstream to the big suppliers, the big fish, the cartels, and not these uh, mules who bring small amounts across the border every day. Great. I like that upstream approach and, and thought. So I was at the United Nations. It was actually my very first time uh, in Vienna in the um, Commission on Narcotic Drugs. Um, I got to learn a lot. How effective is, is the United Nations in dealing with these type of issues? Well, the United Nations can help build awareness. Um, they have some capabilities, but it really depends on the member states getting together and, and helping to implement programs. So it's important to have the United Nations involved. Um, when the Secretary General makes this a priority, um, it's very important. But right now, the uh, overall effectiveness of the United Nations has been challenged uh, by Russia, which has you know, so egregiously violated the charter. They're on the Security Council. They have a veto. So any big security issues involving Russia, it's a pretty hopeless um, venue to make progress. Um, that said, um, I'm a big believer and supporter of the United Nations. I've been involved in uh, different efforts uh, and with some huge success. And I'll just give one example. It's a little off topic. But uh, about 10 years ago, um, with the United Nations, the United States, uh, we um, destroyed uh, Syria's chemical weapons stockpile together. We had uh, Russian and Chinese naval vessels together with UK uh, and you know, NATO um, naval vessels protecting uh, Danish and um, uh, Nor uh, Norwegian ships that were um, removing the chemical weapons stockpile, 1,300 tons of chemical weapons from Syria for safe uh, destruction uh, on, a, on a US ship uh, in the Mediterranean. So cooperation has happened. And, and by the way, that operation was carried out after the Russian invasion of Crimea. So cooperation has happened, but the system is fraying and the um, 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is really um, the biggest threat to the UN system in, in my lifetime. Wow. Um, that's quite a statement. It also shows that we have lost some deterrence, right? And that allows uh, China to have a better eye on Taiwan. Well, deterring China remains important and, and strengthening a, a partnership with our allies in the region, with Japan, with South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, uh, to let China know that we would like to see the Taiwan issue resolved, but they are committed uh, to an agreement that we reached decades ago on the peaceful resolution of, of that issue. Yeah. The, the, I, I mentioned that at the United Nations when I was there, there wasn't a lot of talk on fentanyl. There was a lot of talk about marijuana, legalized, not legalized. You mentioned Syria. Out of all the countries that I hear that I heard talk about drugs, Syria really impacted me the most because they're still in war. They're still an oppressed country. And they spoke adamantly that uh, they didn't approve of marijuana legalization, that marijuana now cannabis is affecting their youth. Um, I, I interpret from that, from their, their potential social, soldiers. And it's, you know, it's in, in a country that's dealing with war, they can't afford that. It is uh, it's uh, keeping their youth down, and that therefore it, uh, makes their defense down. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to me that so much of the tension was focused on the issue of marijuana and not on fentanyls. Um, I mean, the, the order of magnitude of, of um, devastation that, that fentanyls are causing is way beyond anything marijuana uh, legalized or, or, or not could ever inflict on a population. Interesting. Maybe next year I need to bring Families Against Fentanyl to the to the uh, Commission on Narcotic Drugs to talk about that. Well, I think it definitely needs to be on the international agenda at, at yeah. forums like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was not. So now now you've empowered me to try to bring that for next year. Um, the, the big discussion that I noticed around the table at the United Nations is legalized, no, not legalized. But more than that, there's a, a contingency from the United States um, who came in and they were not just legalized or not legalized, they were normalizing, commercializing. Uh, their, their motto was, you have your wine, I'll have my line. You know, so you can have your you know, glass of wine, I should be able to take a line of cocaine. And, and really pushing that which was amazing that, that there, there is a philosophy of promoting drugs. Um, at the same time, there is an attempt to prevent drug use and protect youth. Have you noticed that? I see that all the time now in the United States. I see that. I think that that is our philosophical divide on drug use. And what are your perspectives? Well, it, it's been interesting to see how quickly um, states are normalizing or, or legalizing um, recreational and med uh, medical use of, of marijuana. Uh, the federal government hasn't uh, really uh, caught up with that. So it's, it's, a, it's a social issue. I think, I think the majority of the American public in polling um, supports uh, decriminalizing um, marijuana. 
but that's a, a totally different um, um, beast than uh, fentanyls or heroin or cocaine that are so much, so much, much more deadly. But I think they also hijack the word, what you said, decriminalize. So I, I would even decriminalize fentanyl use, right? Um, but that's very different than legalizing a drug, retailing it, um, and, you know, and promoting it on children. Right. I mean, we, we don't want to throw all the users in jail. That, that won't accomplish anything. In fact, we tried that, um, starting with President Nixon, and, and it was unsuccessful. Um, that's why I'm a big believer in going after the, uh, like I said, the big fish, the suppliers who are profiting from this. Um, I think if, if it became our policy to treat the large-scale um, importation of, of fentanyl, um, you know, if we treated that as a weapon of mass destruction and used the, the, the legal authorities that come with that, it might force the cartels to, to rethink uh, the value of engaging in, in this activity. That's right. You need to make it more painful. You can't make um, drug dealing uh, as lucrative uh, with no consequences as it is right now. There has to be that deterrence. How, how do you differentiate between pharmaceutical grade fentanyl that I use in the hospital versus the illicit kind when you declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction? Yeah, I, I think that's fairly straightforward. And, and we'll, we'll use the nuclear analogy. There are nuclear power plants that that have uh, uranium fuel, and then that's you know in authorized use. And then there's unauthorized. If somebody is uh, trafficking in uh, in plutonium or, or weapons grade uranium on the black market, we treat that as a weapon of mass destruction. So we've done that with other substances. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard to delineate uh, in this case. Wow, such a simple answer. There we go. <laughs> Beautiful. The other thing I was reminded of when I was at the United Nation is, is history and the history of the opium wars when uh, Great Britain was uh, shipping opium to China and people were getting addicted and the Chinese government was begging to stop that flow of drugs onto their population and uh, Britain said no and they opened up the whole opium trade. I'm wondering learning from history if this is now payback time. Like, you know, we, the West, pushed opium on the Chinese population, got them addicted, and now is this uh, historical payback for, for that? Well, I, I don't assume that the Chinese government is encouraging the export of, of fentanyl and precursor chemicals. Um, they may be turning a bit of a blind eye, but, but I don't see this as a deliberate Chinese government um, activity. Uh, could they do more to stem the flow? Yes. Uh, should we continue to press them to do that? Yes. But I don't, uh, I don't think this is uh, a situation where China is, the government is actively supporting or encouraging the uh, export of these substances to, uh, to Mexico and the United States directly. So that's just conspiracy theory, because at the same time that COVID, whether it came from China or not, and fentanyl, um, whether it was, you know, coming on purpose or not from China, that's just coincidence and conspiracy that that 
all happen at the same time. Well, the COVID origin story is obviously um, very important, but uh, nobody, um, the intelligence community, the different agencies all agree that China did not deliberately release it. Um, they talk about the, the plausibility of an accidental uh, release, and, and that is um, a plausible scenario. But the conspiracy theories that China somehow unleashed COVID intentionally um, uh, just don't make any sense given how much China itself has suffered from COVID. So that, that's important to distinguish. And so if you, if you were president of the United States right now, uh, what would be the immediate policies that you would implement and why um, to, to deal with this drug issue and fentanyl specifically? Well, I, I think a presidential declaration, you know, classifying uh, fentanyls as a weapon of mass destruction would have important symbolic value, but it would have actual value in getting the Defense Department, CIA, and, and other incredible capabilities that the U.S. government has globally uh, to bring more to bear on uh, stemming the flow of these uh, substances into the United States. So I'd like to see that. I'd like to see uh, the Department of Justice um, enforce the large-scale trafficking of, of fentanyl as uh, uh, as they do with any trafficking of a weapons, uh, weapons of mass destruction materials. Um, I think that would make a big difference, and that's why um, I'm involved in, in the effort of, of Families Against Fentanyl, uh, who've been uh, dogged in, in pursuing this objective. It has symbolic value, but it has real meaningful value in terms of making it a higher priority and giving us an expanded tool set to stem the flow. Wow, that's that's important. And is that a partisan issue? You served under the Obama administration. Now we or have. Uh, d does it matter who, whether you have a D or an R behind your name with this issue? No, absolutely not. It's not a partisan issue at all. Um, I live in Ohio. We have a Republican senator and a Democratic senator, and they're both in full agreement on this. So uh, it. Countering weapons of mass destruction should never be a partisan issue. Right. I love that. And that upstream approach. And then, you know, finally, tell us um, from your, you know, vast experience, what now today is keeping you up at night and what gives you hope for the future? Well, two things keep me up at night. One is the, the potential for um, use of weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine by the Russian government by the Russian military, whether it's nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons, a terrorist use of weapon of mass destruction. And I think the most likely WMD for a terrorist group to, to, um, to use would be uh, fentanyls. So a, a mass casualty attack with fentanyls is something that keeps me up at night. And then another thing that keeps me up at night, we started this conversation talking about the tragic loss of Amanda. Well, I'm a father of a teenage girl. Um, you know, she's 19 years old and, and she has no history of drug use, but I worry um, that she may, you know, be 
push to take a pill or something um, and, and not know uh, how deadly it is. So uh, I can't imagine uh, the tragedy of that. And, and I, I, it happens so many times every day and we just have to, uh, we have to do so much more across the board from education, public health, uh, test kits so people can know if there's fentanyl in a drug. And now uh, the wide availability of, of Narcan, hopefully it will be priced in a way that, you know, every bar, every bar will have a supply and, and um, you know, other social gathering places, people will have it in their homes because we do, unlike other weapons of mass destruction and, and, and drugs, we have an, an, an effective antidote um, to save lives. And we can save a lot of lives with the, uh, wide distribution of that and, and education of people on, on how to use it, how to recognize the symptoms. Yeah, we're putting them in vending machines in strategic areas, naloxone in vending machines, yeah. I think that's, that's great. I, I fully support that. Yeah. What about hope? Well, hope, um, for me, maybe it's too easy to say this, but it's generational. Um, I am just so impressed with, with the younger generation and their leadership on a lot of these issues, um, you know, ranging from climate to um, reducing the risk of nuclear war. Um, they are so capable, so well-educated, uh, well-informed, uh, politically involved. So they make me hopeful for the future. Uh, so yeah, either way, whether, whether we're what keeps us up at night and what gives us hope is the same thing, right? Which is the next generation, our children, yes. which is why we're doing all this, right? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I want to say thank you to Michael Gray. I absolutely love your philosophy and managing the supply and hence our conversation today. And I know Amanda's memory is a blessing for the work that you're doing. And thank you, Andy, uh, for a chemically charged discussion and education. Uh, the world can be a scary place. And we'll pray for peace for our children and our future. Great. Thank you very much for what you're doing in this area, Bernie. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.